You know, I was just thinking, um, I saw a Facebook post from one of my old professors, Michael Anthony. It just made me remember this story I want to share with you. See, when I graduated Biola University, uh, I graduated in my department, Christian Education, and as we're getting ready to walk up and receive our diplomas, Michael Anthony pulls us all together. And he huddles us up and he says, ladies and gentlemen, I, I just want you to know that I'm praying on my hands and knees for each one of you and more so for the institutions and churches you'll be headed to. Because for the first five years of ministry, you'll be utterly worthless. And so I'm going to pray for them. And he said, but let me encourage you with these words. He said, let me just encourage you with a message that I remember from the scriptures in the book of Numbers. He says, you remember that great story of Balaam? It's that one where God's prophet, or a man who is sent to destroy God's people by offering a curse upon them, turns into God's prophet. And as he's on his way to talk to the Israelites and put this curse upon them, he is traveling down the road and his donkey all of a sudden stops following the way he wants to go. And so he's beating the donkey, he's whipping the donkey, he's yelling at the donkey, he's saying, go, 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 and finally the donkey turns around and says, look, now I'm going to paraphrase, you moron. Can't you just open your eyes and see that there's an angel standing in front of us with a sword who is ready to kill you? I'm trying to protect you. And so Michael Anthony turns to us and he says, if God can use a donkey, what makes you think he can't use you? Now, I tell you that story because it's interesting that that story takes place almost 1,500 years before Christ's birth. And within that story is wrapped another story where Balaam comes to curse the Israelites not once, not twice, but three times. And it's the third time you can read about it in the book of Numbers. I believe it's chapter 22 and 23 where he, or 22 and 24 where he talks about this. And let me read it to you because this is very pertinent to where we're headed today. He quotes this, the oracle of Balaam, son of Baor, the oracle of the one whose eyes now see clearly, thanks to God, the oracle of one who hears the words of God, who has knowledge of the Most High, who sees a vision from the Almighty, who falls prostrate on his face before and whose eyes are opened. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob and a scepter will rise out of Israel. He says, the Israelites are on this journey through the wilderness. They've just been saved by their Savior, Moses. But they have found themselves disheartened. You see, they've watched what God has provided for them, and they still feel like God is just not enough. They're going to do things their own way, and they're going to forfeit the covenant they made with God. But what I love about that story is that even though we forfeit, God never forfeits us. And so sometimes as we're in the wilderness, it's going to feel like God has given up on us. But it's probably more like we might have given up on God. And we're going to see that God not only doesn't give up on us, but he's going to follow through with what he said he is because God is not a liar. And he can't go back on his character. And so if God says it, God's going to do it. And so out of that amazing oracle comes this prophecy that a star will one day come and show us the birth of the King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus Christ the Messiah, the Christ child who was born Emmanuel God with us. 
And so in order to get there, I want to point out a couple things that I think will kind of be interesting as we begin to explore this story a little further. And as we take into this idea of sometimes when we're in the wilderness, it can feel scary. Sometimes when we're in the wilderness, it can feel lonely. Sometimes it can feel like God gave up on us. But what I want to remind you is that God never gives up. That even in the midst, God is always doing something. And so today we're going to look particularly at a couple characters. You might know them as the wise men or the magi or the three kings. And they're very interesting characters, and I want to go into their history and their background and show you that from the very beginning, God had a plan that was already working even in the midst of Israel's greatest wilderness journey, even in the middle of its darkest time. But before we go any farther, let me kind of enlighten you with something I grew up with that always encouraged me as a child. It was the TV guide that came out every week. And around this time of year, we would flip through the pages, my sister and I, and we'd circle, highlight, rip, and tear, and do everything we could to mark that page so we didn't miss a single one of the holiday cartoon shows. Well, this particular week, what came out on TV Guide was nothing more than the Claymation Christmas. And so would you enjoy this video? Kings of Orient are bearing gifts we prize afar. Field and fountain, moor and mountain, following on the star. Oh, star, wonder star of night, star with royal beauty bright. Westward leading, still proceeding, guidance to that perfect light. Born a king on Bethlehem plain, gold I bring to crown him again. King forever ceasing, never over us all to reign. Star of wonder, star of night, star of royal beauty bright, westward leading, still proceeding, guides to that perfect light. Frankincense to offer have I, incense owns the deity high, prayer and praising all men raise. Worship him, God most high. Oh, star of wonder, star of night, star of beauty bright. Westward leading, still proceeding, guides to that perfect light. Glorious now, behold him arise. King and God and sacrifice. Alleluia, alleluia, whom the heavens replies. Oh, star of wonder, star of night, star with joy of beauty bright, westward leading still. Proceeding, guide us to that perfect light. 
Kind of ridiculous, isn't it? You know, you can't go anywhere in this world and not see a scene of the crash and not find three men bowed before baby Jesus. And sometimes they come in all shapes and sizes, all different colors, and they represent different things. But there's this amazing thing that is built into our society, into our culture, into our belief system, that there were these three people that showed up to give Jesus Christ these gifts. And it's interesting because some of it's just an illusion or a legend. You see, many Christian carols make mention of the three kings who follow a star and come to pay homage to a baby Jesus in Bethlehem. And in the Bible, they're not called kings. In fact, there's nothing about them being kings. And their number's not specified. Instead, they're wise men from the east, ancient Babylon and Persia. And they were known for their, their learned astrologers who, offered, who often served as priestly advisors. Now, in the story, we're going to find that King Herod had heard rumors of the birth of this new king baby Jesus. And he was jealous, and he sought out the baby. And in the book of Matthew, the Magi stop at Herod's palace on their way to Bethlehem, and the king asked them to let him know where the newborn baby is so that I may go and pay him homage. But the Magi were warned in a dream not to return to Herod, and so they left for their own country by another road, and we never hear them again. Later tellings of the story, though, identify the Magi by name, and we identify their lands of origin. Melchior is hailed from Persia, Gaspar or Caspar or Jasper is from India, and Balthazar from Arabia. And this isn't that they're trying to fool us, but it's kind of interesting that they pull from all these different areas to say, look at how all the Gentile nations have come to bow before the Son of Christ. Their gifts had special symbolic meanings as well. Gold signified Jesus' status as king of the Jews. Frankincense represented the infant's divinity and identify him as the Son of God. And the myrrh touched upon Jesus' Mortality. In other words, that's what they would pack a body with. And so these things begin to seep into the story from the culture. And it doesn't make them bad per se. But we want to pay attention to what the Bible has to teach us about this. And what I want to show you today is not that these things are necessarily negative or, or evil or wrong. I want to show you a deeper story of what really is happening with these supposed wise men that come from the East. And so we're going to dig into some of the past. We're going to go back almost 1,500 years and see how this all works together to bring us this incredible message that when Christ is born, the entire world takes notice, that you can't escape it, that it wasn't simply just a child being born in a manger in the middle of nowhere, Bethlehem, but it was the King of kings and Lord of lords who took upon flesh, entered into history, and became one of us so that he could die for us and ultimately rise again so that you and I can be co-heirs with Christ, meaning children of the living God. So this is really, really important for where we're headed. But we have to ask the question, who were these real wise men? And so this is probably the most accurate picture of what they might have looked like. Now, we don't know if there was exactly three, but this is a pretty realistic image, and this was from a very long, long time ago, over a thousand years. What's interesting about this is you see these particular men wearing these funny hats. And those hats actually have a specific date and time when we look at them. And we can recognize that that is Babylonian Persia. And so we can find a date and a place. And we can see that they're dressed in Persian garb. And they're carrying gifts that would come from those specific areas. And so there's something unique about this, that these people come from a very specific place. And we're going to hear more about that in a minute. We figure they're from Babylon, Persia. They studied star constellations. That was important for them to read the zodiac signs and know what's happening in the skies above them. 
Size e, this is the, the near straight line configuration of three celestial bodies, such as the sun, the moon, and the earth during a solar lunar eclipse. In other words, they're looking for things to line up in a very specific way, and when they do, they read into that and they understand that to be certain things. Now, one of their responsibilities, other than providing information to whoever is in charge or whoever is king in their particular land, was also to interpret dreams and help them understand the future. But most importantly, they have the power and the responsibility to watch the constellations to align in just the right way in which they would know who the new king would be. And that was their job throughout history, was to identify and then lift up the new king in front of everyone and declare them king. So it's a pretty interesting role they have. Later, Greeks would provide them with something really special. They would give them math. And math would then allow them to look at the stars and be able to mathematically create and come up with ways in which they could read and dial in their uh, understandings of what they're seeing, and they could even dial them into a year ahead of time. And so you could see how this particular culture and this group of people could look forward to the future and say, we know in one year's time the planets will align in such and such a way, and we can look forward to the coming of a new king. And so they were very much into this and understanding it. Now, Let's go back in time a little bit from Jesus' birth. In fact, we're going to go back, oh, I don't know, probably about 500 years. Before Christ is born, the worst thing that could ever happen to the nation of Israel is that they get plundered and destroyed. Now, this is the third time they've come under this kind of attack, and it's because they've no longer sought to worship God. This isn't because God wants to punish them or beat them up or, or torture them for not being faithful. It's God is constantly reminding them to trust him as their God. Remember the covenant he made with Abraham and then reinstates it with Moses and reinstates it over and over with every single prophet that comes to the Israelites. It goes like this, I will be your God and you will be my people. And in that original covenant made with Abraham, God takes an animal and he splits it in two. And then he walks between the animal and he says, Abraham, what happened to this animal, may it happen to me if I forego my covenant with you. In other words, if I fail. Now at this point, Abraham should get up and walk between the animal and make that same covenant to God and say, God, if I screw up on my end, then may what happened to this animal happen to me. But he doesn't. Instead, God says, Abraham, sit down. And God walks through it again. And he says, Abraham, just as I said, if I screw up, may what happened to this animal happen to me. If you screw up, may what happened to this animal happen to me. And so at the very beginning, we see that God is already put in place a plan to give his very own life for ours, knowing full well that we would probably never be able to uphold that covenant, even with the greatest of intentions. And so during this Babylon captivity of 586 B.C., Israel is under attack, and their town, Jerusalem, is going to be devastated. Now, this is the worst destruction it's ever had. In fact, they're not only going to level the place, they're going to level the temple, their holy house of worship, the place which God would dwell with them. And so this idea of God dwelling with them now goes away. And the people are not just being taken off into exile as slaves and prisoners, but they're taken off in utter defeat. Our God gave up on us. We are people without a home. We are people without a God or a place to worship our God. We are nothing. But there's always hope. 
And so in the midst of this, there's a young group of men that are going to start to get groomed and picked up by the king and the leaders of the land. And they're going to get moved into the palace. And the idea here is that they need some people that will get on board with their philosophies and their thoughts and their politics and be able to express that to their people so that they can limit the confrontation and the struggle that's going on between the Israelites and the Babylonians. And Daniel will be one of those men. And as he's picked up, he and his three friends are going to not only pass every course that is given them in every class, but they're going to do it with high marks, meaning that every time they take a class, they're going to be told to the king that these are the best of the best. You want these guys on your team. And so the king will begin promoting Daniel and these men up to the level of leadership in his kingdom. Now, like I said, God never wastes anything. And here's an opportunity where even in the midst of a crisis, the wilderness, God is beginning to pull out some hope. That even though the mighty oak has fallen, out of the midst of it sprouts hope. And so one night, Nebuchadnezzar, the king, who was ruling over Babylon, who just did all this for the Israelites, has a dream. And in that dream, he, he dreams of this incredible statue, but he can't really remember the whole dream. But he wakes up terrified, and so he calls his magi, his wise men. And he says, search the stars, search the scriptures, search whatever, but tell me what it is I dreamed, and tell me what it means. Well, nobody can do that until Daniel raises his hand. And he says, King, the God of the Israelites has told me what your dream is. Let me tell it to you. And he begins to, to describe this incredibly tall statue. On the very top is this head made of gold. And the chest and arms are made of silver. The, the stomach and thighs are made of bronze. <clears throat> the legs are made of iron. And at the bottom, the feet are made of clay. And the king says, yes, that is exactly what I saw in my dream. And then Daniel says, allow me to interpret it for you as my king and my God has interpreted it for me. And as he begins to explain, he says, this head is the gold, it's your kingdom, my king. And it is the crowning jewel of history. However, next is going to come the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians, the silver part. And they're going to destroy your kingdom. And they're going to be the next giant ruling kingdom in the earth. And then after them will come the Greeks who become the belly and the thighs of bronze. And then they'll be conquered by the Romans. And the Romans will come and they'll build the legs of iron. And then after that, it becomes kind of an interpretation by different scholars. Do the feet represent the ongoing aspect of humanity throughout history? Does it, does it understand the future of what's to happen? But either way, what happens next in the dream is even more important. And it's the idea that then all of a sudden this rock that was taken out of a mountain, as if some heavenly being reached down and just scooped it up with their hand and wings it at this statue. And as it hits the feet, the entire statue just disintegrates and turns to dust. And out of that rock, it grows into a mighty mountain so big that it overcomes the entire world and is known throughout the universe. And as Daniel is interpreting this, he says, this is the kingdom of God. That even in the wilderness, God is still supreme. 
Well, Daniel is raised to this power of authority. He's now the head of all the magi. And so he is now one of the wise men in this kingdom of Babylon and Persia. Now, King Nebuchadnezzar will have his rise and his fall, and he'll rise again. And then there'll be three other kings that will come while Daniel is there. And each one will test Daniel. They'll put him in fire. They'll put him to the lions to be fed. They'll try to starve him with food. They'll do different things, but each time God will show that Daniel is one of God's holy anointed people, as if he's a prophet. And in doing so, Daniel is going to now work with the Magi, and as they're studying the stars and the sky, and he's learning about their history and even their understanding of God, he's going to see some things that parallel the God of the Bible. And he's going to see that in their belief system, they have a God who's omnipresent. That means he's all places at once. He's good. He fights against another God who is evil. And he wants to bestow upon all his world love and kindness. And he wants to do away with what's evil. And so as Daniel is hearing them tell him these stories, he's saying, well, I, I know this God. This is, this is Elohim. Uh, we, we call him Yahweh in our culture. He's the one who created us and, and formed us and everything in this world. He's the one that breathed life into us. And he's the one that made a promise that even though we're all cursed under this world and the sin that is throughout it, that one day he will come and set all things right. And, and you can see these Persian magi going, yeah, 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 that makes sense. You know, we've been studying this our whole lives, but we, we've never been able to put a full name to it or, or, or put a full grasping around it. But now we understand. Now, this is so important because our story, although it stops here, doesn't stop. You see, we're now going to jump about 400 years into the future. What's happening in history during Jesus' birth is there's been 400 years where no prophet has spoken in all of Israel. In other words, God has been silent. Now, we've seen this before in Exodus. 400 years, the Israelites are held captive by Egypt and Pharaoh until a Savior is born, Moses, who comes and frees God's people. 400 years, there's no prophet spoken, and now we have this Christ baby that is being promised to be born. Julius Caesar <clears throat> names his great nephew Gaius Octavian. We know him as Julius Caesar Augustus, as the new Caesar. Herod the Great is now over Judea. He's considered a Jewish king, but really he's just a puppet. He paid his way in, and nobody likes him. But something amazing is going to happen at this particular point in time. An astro-anomaly is happening that's going to cause the entire ancient world to notice something. And I want to get into that a little bit. This is uh, one of the images of Aries, and it's a particular um, aspect in our solar system where Planets and stars, the moon and the sun, all align in a particular way in which we can see this constellation called Aries. And in there, you'll see the moon and Jupiter. And when those two align in a very specific way, it causes the world to notice something. And I wrote this down because this is fascinating to me. I never really understood all this stuff. But do you know that the way our solar system works, we have the sun. And then the different planets that revolve around it. But do you know Earth is about three or four planets from the sun, and then Jupiter is so much farther out that when we travel, we travel much faster than Jupiter. 
And so there's moments where we catch Jupiter and we actually pass Jupiter. And when we do that about every 12 to 14 months, it causes what they call a retrograde. It's as if Jupiter stands still in the sky for all to take notice. And so as these magi are searching the stars and constellations, they notice that around this particular time, something unique is happening, that before the sun rises, they can see these planets lining up and lighting up. And Jupiter and the moon and the sun are in perfect alignment. And they're in alignment with Aries. And because it's in this crazy retrograde, they don't just see it once, but they're going to see it three times over that year. And more importantly, they'll be able to see it from all different directions. So that the entire world is going to be able to see this magnificent thing happening. And because they're the Magi, the ones who declare who's king, they're looking through their notes and they realize that it falls within this Aries constellation. And Aries being this ram represents a specific area in the world called Judea. And so out of Judea will come a king with a scepter. Just like Balaam said 1,500 years before this. So Jupiter lines up with Aries and something magnificent is happening that the world has never ever seen before. It's so important that the Roman Empire mints it on a coin. Here's the ram. There's the star. As if they're coming together to show the world something. Now what's fascinating is during this exact same time, remember Caesar Augustus, great-grandson who's now been elevated to the new Caesar? He self-appoints himself or self-declares himself a child of God. And that when these stars aligned, it must mean him. And since he just beat Mark Anthony and Cleopatra and has now brought peace to the kingdom, he truly is that great God that everyone has come to worship. So you can actually find these coins and you can find that king or that God, that Caesar saying that he is the son of God. Now what's interesting is meanwhile over in Persia, a little over 800 miles away, these particular magi are going to notice this constellation. And because they've been conquered by Alexander the Great over the years and they've been taught Greek mathematics, they've been able to see this coming from years ahead. And so they've been gathering supplies and building their caravan. In fact, their caravan must have been so big that when it came into Jerusalem, it had to be so enormous that people stopped and took notice. This was something radical that hadn't happened in a very, very long time. And so as these men begin to make their journey, this is what it would have looked like. 800 miles. This is months and months and months of preparation and then months and months and months of traveling. And you would say, well, how would they know which way to go? Well, remember how that constellation is in retrograde, so it's constantly showing up? It's as if there was a star that just stood still over Bethlehem. And so these people were able to make this incredible journey. And so they come bearing gifts. And so Matthew records the story like this. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. 
They asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. This is the one whom Daniel spoke about. This is the one whom Balaam spoke about. We saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all of Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people, people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them, where's this Messiah to be born? In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judea. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for this child, and as soon as you find him, report him to me so that I too may go and worship him. <laughs> yeah, right. Just so you know, Herod is known for killing numerous people in his family, including one of his wives and some of his children because they threatened his throne. I don't think he came to worship Jesus. I think he was trying to kill him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen, when it rose, went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary. They bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. This is an idea of what they might have given him. Last week, we looked at what happens when Jesus' family has to deal with such incredible pressures, the struggles that come our way that aren't even necessarily our fault, but the things we have to live in and live through. And how even though they had to live through such difficult times, God constantly provided for them, and the wise men coming were one of the things that provided. These gifts, although they may have been symbols for mighty things in Jesus' life, also became incredibly valuable currency as Joseph and Mary would pack up Jesus and quickly run to Egypt to escape Herod. And they would wait there so many years until Herod eventually died, and then they would return back. But all that time, they probably lived off these gifts given by the wise men. Remember how we talked about God always has a plan in the midst? That God is always working in the midst? That even when we're in the wilderness, and, and it's so hard to just have the patience and the courage to wander through it, that it's so easy to just give up on God and think, where is he in all this? And why does this even matter? That he's orchestrating something so great that has been in the works for thousands and thousands of years. That God isn't making this plan up as he goes. God is simply initiating the plan he already had in place. And it doesn't matter what king comes to power or, or what nation now rules the world. That tower will one day fall, and God's mighty mountain will grow. And the kingdom rule of God will be here. And the Emmanuel God with us will be here. I share this with you because as we come into this season of Advent, thinking about the wise men and the different characters that sometimes we see in that crush scene, it's easy just to forget about it. It's easy just to dumb it down into singing camels and, and three claymation guys singing. It's easy just to say, where is God in all this? Because bills are due and life is hard. 
relationships are broken, jobs are difficult, school can be hard, friends aren't always trustworthy, family members can be difficult. Sometimes people get sick. Sometimes people even die. So where is God in all this? Well, he's right here in the midst. And the story is simply a reminder that God had a plan from the beginning, and that plan is still in effect. And the fruition is only half shown to us. For unto this day a child is born. We get ready to celebrate the birth of Christ, and we recognize that incredible gift that God has brought into this world, that he's not given up on us, that his promise is still good, that he'll make good on everything he said he would. And as Christians, we know this. Because we didn't just see a child, we saw a child grown up into an incredible man who lived a life absolutely perfect, meaning he never once sinned or turned his back on God. Every thought, every action he put in submission to God. And and he did it for you and I. So that when it came to that point in his life where he could offer his life, and Christ is taken to the cross and killed, We see it for what it is, an unfair death to somebody who didn't deserve it. And for those that look at it even deeper, we might even recognize that we should be the one on that cross because we're the ones who fell short. But just like God said to Abraham, no, no, you sit this out. I'm going to make this covenant. And and if you fall short, then what happened to this animal isn't going to happen to you. It's going to happen to me. I'm going to stand in your stead. And so when we celebrate the birth of Christ, we also celebrate his life lived and given for us. That triumphantly he went to the cross, looking at each one of us in the eye, saying, you're worth it. You're worth it. You're worth it. You're so worth it. So that when he dies on the cross, he can say those words that I love so much when he says, it is is finished. That means it's finished now, it's finished then, and it will never cease being finished. You know, I think it's that idea that Daniel passed on to the wise men. So that all those years, as they're passing that story on to the next and the next, and they're gazing across the skies looking for that sign of hope, Where is God in all of this? As the world has been conquered four times over, we still see that in the midst of all of that is this kingdom of God that has come to earth in a tiny baby, but really represents the kingdom that has come to each one of us and is that promise that he will make all things new. This is what we celebrate, and this is what we think about when we're in the wilderness.